right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody coming and, and listening and partaking from all over the place. Welcome uh, to a conversation today on brand purpose and giving the role of sports during a disaster. I'm David Schwab from Octagon. Uh, really excited to be joined by four thoughtful colleagues who will each bring a different perspective, but I think in aggregate tell a complete story. Uh, Andrew Hawkins, Hawk, with the best background up there, is a uh, NFL alumni, multimedia maven across the NFL Network, ESPN, and he also co-hosts a podcast on Uninterrupted called Tomahawk with his Cleveland Browns teammate, Joe Thomas. Michael Robichaud, Roby, is a senior vice president of global sponsorship at MasterCard, responsible for the development and execution of their global sponsorship portfolio, ranges across Rugby, Grammys, MLB, Riot Games, PGA Tour, UEFA, Champions League, League of Legends, Australian Open, and a lot more. Just a, a first-class uh, group of portfolio of properties. Bryant Barr is president of SC30, Inc. He is the point in the development of Stephen Curry's business, brand, and life, including his Eat, Learn, and Play Foundation. And his relationship with Stephen dates all the way back to their College Hoops teammate days at Davidson. And Pat, excuse me, and Patty McElreevy is the CEO of the Center for Disaster Philanthropy and has worked tirelessly in the humanitarian field for nearly 30 years. Um, if you're watching and have a question, please ask it in the chat room. I will keep uh, looking and monitoring it often and we'll ask as many as we can. We've had an unreal amount of questions come in uh, so far, so less of a small chat and let's just get into it and, and get through as many as we can. Patty, if you would, lead us off and yep. give us a macro look to get the conversation um, in some perspective. How is COVID different from other disaster relief or philanthropy and, right. and charity that you see at CDP, please? Great. So, I mean, first off, thank you for having me, David, and, and looking forward to this conversation. I, I mean, for COVID-19, I think I can't really say what people don't already know, but it, you know, from a humanitarian perspective, it is unprecedented. I mean, that's a word we love to use in, in the field. We are always talking about the largest this, the worst that in terms of crises or famine or, or displaced populations. And those, those sentiments are, are, oft, are very honest in terms of the parameters of what we're looking at. But for COVID-19, this is truly unprecedented in our lifetime or in the lifetimes of anyone that we know. I mean, the last time there was a global pandemic was in 1918. I mean, we're talking over 100 years ago. And, and again, Everyone knows this, but I'll say it, it affects everyone. This many crises, they're far away. You can you can empathize, you can you can feel for communities, but the numbers of people are somewhat contained and and, and often are are far away. So we're looking at philanthropy, we're calling upon the philanthropic community to give to others that are distant. But now it's it's local, it's regional, it's national, it's global, it's everything. It, it, it's it's medical, it's economics. It's social. There are so many ways this is impacting everyone's lives. Some people will, of course, be impacted much, much greater than others. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that everyone, everyone is impacted by this. In terms of the response and how that's different, I do think we're seeing a, a surge of philanthropy unlike anything we've ever seen before. There's $12 billion given already um, to, to the philanthropic movement globally for this response. And we always say at CDP, you know, during everyone's a disaster giver. If you're, if you're assisting, if you're working, if you're helping people in some way, you are working towards helping those communities be more resilient to, you know, deal with and, and manage disasters if they were to come to that community. But I think at this moment in time, it, that, that statement, that mantra that we have is truly occurring. We are having it that everyone who's helping in any way they're giving is giving as a disaster philanthropist right now. And we really commend that. The $10 billion obviously is global. That's not a number just for the U.S. But even in the U.S., we're seeing unprecedented numbers, you know, three, four times the amount given for the last time there was a, a, an enormous crisis of response for, for Harvey. So you're just seeing a, a great deal of, of assistance. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there and, and, and see where else we might want to go with this. But I, I think that's the main thing I would put out there. The Where we're starting with is, Everyone impacted, everyone in for the solution. And uh, from another perspective, how many disasters is the CDP working on right now in addition to COVID from around the world? 
Uh, we actually stand up funds uh, to, to a number of crises, but those are not the only ones we work on. We, we have a stewardship role where we play with, you know, philanthropic community and, and, and corporate givers on how to guide them in crises and how they're, they're giving maybe. So the number of funds we have, uh, which actually I, I believe is 12 at the moment, but the, the actual response that we give in terms of the disasters we're tracking is much greater than that. Um, and how we advise and how we guide on it. So, I mean, that's actually a great point, David. People need to remember that these are not the only, this is not the only disaster impacting some communities. If you're in the Midwest, for example, right now, you have floods occurring. There have been tornadoes. There was a derecho in Tennessee in addition to the um, hurricanes of a few weeks ago. There have been the wildfires in California people are still recovering from. Even here in the U.S., not even talking about the large-scale disasters you have like Yemen or Syria or the Rohingya in Bangladesh, you have crises in the U.S. that are affecting Americans every day um, that are some are in the media, some are not, but that impact that family in a way that is going to damage their capacity to either mitigate the harm that this current COVID-19 response um, disaster will have or make it even harder for them to recover. Um, so I think those are things that are very important for us to keep in mind. The, the, the amount of crises ongoing at any time are, is, is, um, is quite extensive. Thank you. Um, and Michael, in hearing all that, what do you think the role of sports is in a disaster? And, and I'm curious now at MasterCard, but for you, I mean, which you've been for quite some time, but you've also been in sports and sponsorship for 20 plus years across a number of brands. So what is the role and how has that changed? Um, well, it, we all think of it's got a big role, right? Because it's a place where people come together. It's a place where they have fun and, and enjoyment and entertainment. Um, we're clearly struggling today because so so little of it's happening, if any at all. Um, so I think when we think of the role of sports, it's going to be either those that can exist. And you mentioned League of Legends and, and esports. That's um, you know very much continuing and people are uh, enjoying and, and happy about that, which is which is great. Uh, I think other sports are, you know, doing the best they can to 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 try to have some relevance. Uh, ambassadors and athletes are are clearly doing uh, a lot, and and we can talk about that for a while. Um, and then I think the role of sport is going to be when it comes back, and what does sports look like when we do come back, and how are fans going to be able to engage with that. Um, I think full attendance, full sports, um, as we've known it in the past, is going to be down the road a little bit. I think we're all going to have to wait for that a little bit. But I think um, any form of sports and entertainment, something to distract everyone from kids to adults to everybody that just needs a little bit of a break and change of pace um, is going to be critical. And Brian, adding on to that in terms of role and responsibility for sports leaders, what's your, what's your take there? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has a responsibility to pitch in, whether you're a sports leader or not, where, where you can, right, with, with, with what's reasonable. And some people are more affected by COVID-19 than others. Um, and so you're going to have some people on the receiving end. You're going to have, you know, uh, hopefully a lot of people on the giving end. Um, I think when I, when I think of athletes or other sports leaders, um, it's that what makes them different than others in how they pitch in is the platform that they have and how they can galvanize other people to rally around something and amplify how big it can be. Um, and so, you know, whether it's a league commissioner, team owner, individual athlete, um, I think, you know, those are all individuals in position to be able to help and give back in some way, probably in outsized ways compared, compared to most, um, given the resources that they have. But in addition to those resources, they all have unique platforms, right? For somebody like Stefan, it's a massive following on social media. And so how do you use that to create some sort of groundswell, whether it's information sharing or rallying people, you know, to give, you know, X amount of dollars to, um, to different causes that are going to support in this time of need. But that's, that's how I, I think about it um, in terms of the difference between uh, somebody that's a bit more regular like myself, you know, I can pitch in in certain ways, but certainly sports leaders have uh, an outsized ability given their resources and platform. And how do you choose, take Stefan, for example, how do you choose to galvanize, uh, inform, donate, uplift all of those or choose one over the other? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a combination. Um, and I think it depends on, on who you are, what you care about. For Stefan, um, you know, Stefan was, I mean, we think he was the first NBA player to get tested for COVID-19. Um, you know, he had been back one game, uh, started having flu-like symptoms, got tested immediately, and uh, it ended up coming back negative. But I think that that shook him a little bit, you know, and it made it a little bit more real um, uh, faster than, than, than most people. Um, but it's, it makes it, it's easy with Stefan because, um, you know, we have the foundation set up. It's a core part of um, our overall business and what we're doing. Um, you know, they're continuously integrating that across everything we do from an investment media and brand perspective. Um, and so uh, the question that Stefan asked up front was, how do I have the biggest impact? Um, and it's easy to write a check, but we also live in a world where you can get information from a million different places. Oftentimes it's very fragmented. Uh, it can be biased one way or another. Um, information that's really good oftentimes isn't, uh, isn't available everywhere. And so it was, you know, thinking about all the resources we have at our disposal, you know, working with our PR team, Stefan, the Warriors, brand partners, uh, media partners, the foundation, and really just saying, where's the biggest need um, and, and where can we help uh, and what makes the most sense. Hmm. And Hawk, how, how do you balance personally giving versus asking an audience to give? And, and I know you've done some great work over the last couple of weeks with the Children's Hunger Alliance in Ohio, and you've probably done a little bit of both in terms of personal and asking, but where's the fine line for you? Yeah, I, I think just to piggyback off of Brian's point, I mean, uh, as athletes, as entertainers or people who are in the public eye, you have a unique platform. And for me, when this all hit, it was kind of like, OK, we were all kind of processing. This is something that affects everyone uh, to Patty's point, whether, you know, no matter what side you're on. And I think for as we were processing, one thing that we kind of landed on with me and Joe Thomas and our podcast is like, well, hey, we have a cult following of people who love us, they appreciate us, our personalities, who we are. And me and Joe actually came together in a very similar situation where we were kind of giving back. And, and that's not to pat each other on the back, but it's really who we are. It's like, okay, well, we have this platform. Why don't we see how much we can raise uh, from the people who, you know, again, are leaning on us and use our platform and use and view us as entertainment. And my thing is always, I, I never wanna ask somebody to do something that I'm not willing to do. So that's always the balance for me. And I think that, okay, in order to ask people to donate, you have to first show and prove. So we put up our amount of money first and said, hey, whatever you guys give, it's a match, but really we're going to give this no matter what. We would love that if you, had, if you can spare it, if, you know, and at this time everybody was still trying to process exactly, you know, what the consequences of the COVID-19 was going to be. But it was like, if you're, if you're in the position to help, please do so. And, you know, things kind of just took off from there. But again, it's it, more than anything, it's, not asking others to do things that you yourself aren't willing to do. And, and what was your process about going about and, and uh, picking Children's Hunger Alliance in Ohio as your charity of choice? Yeah, so me and Joe were Cleveland Browns teammates. I played college football in Ohio. I played for the Cincinnati Bengals. I have my sisters and brothers live in Ohio. So it's very much, even though I'm from Pennsylvania, it's my second home. I spent the majority of my life in Ohio. And one thing for us was the Children's Hunger Alliance. Um, they helped feed kids who relied on free lunches. So when the school shut down, there's a, a, a majority, a large majority of children in those areas um, that don't have those meals every day that they literally rely on. So, you know, I was a kid who grew up eating free lunch. And, you know, that's something that struck me. And the Children's Hunger Alliance, they help children throughout the entire state. It's not a centralized area. So our thing was we want to help as many kids as possible. And even though Joe has relationships with other organizations, again, the biggest point for us was that the bottom line is this isn't about publicity. This isn't about making us look good. We want to help as many people as possible. And typically, we don't even go public with a lot of stuff we do. But again, if you can use your platform to motivate others who see that and see you as a thought leader, see you as an inspiration, see you as someone to look up to, and they say, hey, they're helping, I want to help. Well, then you've done your job times two, right? You've given yourself personally, then you've also used your platform to make everybody's situation around you better. And if we could all think like that, I think that's how you get the most impact. 
And I just got a text message that asked the question of how do you choose to make a donation public or private? And Hawk, you just mentioned a little bit of giving and the purpose of that was then to ask others to. But the question that's come in as public versus private, is it a publicity stunt? Is it a meaningful Mm -hmm. effort? We live in a different era right now with social media. So if people don't do something publicly, they're often called out even if they are doing it. I'm curious, Michael, maybe you want to take it or really anybody on how you guys go about thinking should financial donations be made public versus private gift? Sure. Um, You're right. I mean, in this day and age, it's hard to, uh, you know, balance that out. You don't want to look opportunistic, but you want to look like you're you're part of the solution and and making a contribution. Um, Fortunately, MasterCard over the last few years um, we've we've set up a separate fund aside from our foundation for um, supporting certain certain things. Uh, it's a, basically a hundred million dollar per year for five year funds. Uh, we made that public several years ago, and part of that was to um, to kind of uh, also put out there what things we were going to be supporting with uh, financial inclusion, and and that actually once you start going down that financial inclusion route, it really touches a lot of things. Um, you could take something as simple as giving the notion of everyone. That, that, that wants to give and wants to help someone in a community, wherever, there's always that little question of, well, how does that money actually get to where I think it's going? How is it going to get to that community, that hungry person, that, that disaster? And part of what we've been able to do is work with groups and partner with groups that are able to actually get and move that money clear. That's our business. So it's something we, we take very seriously and want to be a part of that solution. We, A, put in some of our money, but B, have also worked on those technical solutions, that ability so that um, all the way down to a, a, a mother in, you know, pick a country anywhere in the world where they're getting their government, um, uh, their government support, the old days of getting on a bus and going somewhere far away and getting cash. Uh, all those days are gone now with technology and wireless transfers and prepaid cards and, and all sorts of things that we do. So we, we a, wanted to put, put it out there so people knew what we were doing so that we can identify those communities, find the right partners and to work with them. Um, we've also, uh, most recently with what's going on here, we've partnered right out of the gate with the Bill Gates Foundation. Sorry, I didn't mean to double up the gates there, but uh, with the Bill Gates Foundation and, and, and Welcome Foundation to, to, to put in dollars to support the actual finding of, of a cure and getting it out there. So we made that public. Um, and then most recently, we're supporting small business. And that's something in, that's very specific to the U.S. Uh, in this case, where there's been a call on small uh, support for small business. Um, so that's been uh, kind of the government pulling that together. We've done our part for, for, for that over the next five years for $250 million because we know that small business is the heart of so many communities, so many people's livelihood. Um, that is where things were hit hardest at first and we're probably the slowest to recover. So it's really a balance of all those um, and, and trying to, again, try to find out the right place to support both with dollars and technology. When I when I look at different ways sports can help uh, during a time like this, I go back to six things. Inform, donate, which you guys have talked about quite a bit. Uh, create, teach, influence, and uplift. And we've seen uh, a number of those things come through right now. What you guys are doing than others, I mean, I wrote down a list what Michael Phelps is doing with mental health, John Krasinski with his Some Good News kind of late night programming mm-hmm. Cisco giving out technology to others, the NFL draft, what Clay Walker's doing out there with the National Fitness Foundation to save youth sports. I'm curious, where are you guys impressed right now? What, impressed is the wrong word. Where, where have you seen people do the right thing? And you guys have even learned from that, uh, that they seem to be stepping up right now. Really throw that to anybody on just what you've seen in the market thus far. I mean, I, I can come in on that. I mean, first, um, just thank you to to the others in terms of what they've been giving, and and to ta- touch a little bit on your comment about you know when is, how do you talk about your giving? I, I do want to say that one of the ways that's important to recognize is that there are many many ways to give, 
and, um, you know, Hawk, and you're talking about giving both and doing a fundraiser, but also raising awareness. Raising awareness is a way of giving, you know, telling people that they should care about issues, that they need to care about each other. And I think that's, we need to keep that in perspective. I think all too often we focus on, on the financial side of it. But Michael, what you're talking about, like the focus on small businesses, drawing attention to the fact that small businesses are especially under threat right now. Those are all ways that we are giving in a very broad way and um, cannot be underestimated because the the importance of some of the importance of of when do you talk about when you give some of the importance is, is making people aware of why you're giving and who you're giving to. Those are incredible ways for people to understand the complexities of this crisis. And, um, you know, we do, I understand why, why there are some who, who want to keep their giving more private, but for me, you know, the, the place where it becomes complicated is when the giving is about you, when it's about your message or yourself or your reputation or your ego, if that's too much out of balance, I think that's when people start to question it. But when it's about you're using your platform, your voice, your influence to draw attention to a critical issue, to a critical need, to, to pay it, you know, to focus on areas, those, we need to commend that. And, and not everyone has the same platform. And so I, I, you know, bravo to everyone who's used their platform and their voice to help, even if it's been in small ways, even if it's been, even if it's been very local, however people choose to help. Everyone needs help right now, and, and we need people to look at everything and find different niches where they feel comfortable. But in terms of where I've been most impressed, I mean, we talked about this on, on the team the other day. Everyday heroes is what we're calling it. You know, the kids who are out shopping for senior citizens in their neighborhood and leaving groceries outside their house. The, you know, the uh, different, you know, the, obviously we know about the medical workers. We've heard a lot about that. But there, there's just so many ways. You, ha- you know, you see video- people who are making masks and donating them in their neighborhood. There's so many ways that people are using their skills. I mean, I actually wrote that one of the things I've loved the most are the, the um, entertainers that are making the little videos you know, stuck in quarantine and they're like, you know, replaying, you know, Broadway shows or whatever they're doing with, with wigs and, and Halloween equipment in their house. I, I find those so uplifting. And that for me is, it just helps me with my day. So, I mean, everyday heroes um, in, in the numerous ways that they've been giving are, are just really incredible for, I think, all of us right now in terms of how we, how we get through this crisis together. Mm. Um, another question from the audience is about how soon can you talk uh, after a disaster, during a disaster? When not how soon? When should you come out publicly as an organization? What should that first message be? And then when is it okay to go back to pre-planned campaign messages or things that you are already doing? So, Mike, Michael, maybe from a corporate perspective. Um, just how the team thinks about when to react um, and what that first message should be. Yeah, well, I, I think it really this is a, this has to be unique to the situation, right? So if you think about the fact that this is affecting everybody, right? So it, it was talked about earlier, right? This is affecting virtually everybody in the world. So it's gonna it hit, it hit people early, and it's gonna uh, people are gonna come out of it early in some places versus others. So we're already seeing places in Asia and other parts of the world starting to come out of it. So I think that obviously that needs to be somewhat of a local solution um, depending on what your, your business is. I think um, the key thing is always the consumer, right? We're in the business of the consumer. What is, what is it they're feeling? What is it they're, um, how is it they're reacting? I mean, I think in this case where we've kept things, I would say you look around a lot of the advertising brands, a lot of it have tried to keep things somewhat light. Um, no one's making light of the circumstances, of course, but trying to keep things somewhat light in that, um, we are all in this together. There is a need for for laughing. There is a need to to try to find the positivity while also you know drawing attention toward um, the, the the circumstances that so many people are going through. So it's a balance, right? So you have to read the audience. You have to read um, how people are feeling, how people are ready to move forward. It depends on your business and your brand. You know, there are many brands that are are not quiet today. Um, you know, one of the examples I thought of coming in is a, a brand that's doing well. I like what Domino's is doing. I think Domino's is, um, you know, they still have a business to run. They're running it very well. They've adapted their messaging very quickly to what's important to their workers and what's important to their customers. At the same time, basically saying, hey, guys, we're so busy. We'd love to hire you. 
So trying to fit that need of people that maybe maybe need a job and it's not opportunistic. No one thinks they're taking advantage of the situation. They're they're just really reacting in a in a genuine, authentic way, and it's and it's how they're saying it and how they're doing it. Um, I think that's the key. Uh, a lot of folks are also going to focus on the media and oh my gosh, who would still be advertising? How can you how can you be trying to sell a product now? Well, there's a whole other business you know community of the world of media and advertising and and that sort of thing that still has to keep going. So I know there's a lot of brands are sitting say I've already paid for all this media. I've got to put a message out there. I don't want to just withdraw my media A for a budget or to, to dump my problem on, on the media providers. So you still have to have something out there. So I think brands are, are probably struggling um, to say, how do I keep my media spend up? I don't want to abandon ship. I don't want to abandon my partners. So having to adjust that messaging, we've seen time and time again. I don't watch a ton of it, but what I have seen, you can just see everyone's struggling to try to move quickly. They've, I think we've seen a lot of um, brands do some great stuff in a very short period of time. So the days of a month or two to get a campaign or messaging or a film shoot, I'm sure those have been complicated. So I think there's just so many different moving parts that every brand's gonna have to look at it. What does their brand stand for? What is the consumer saying? And where are we in the time of what the situation is? Hawk, building on what uh, Michael said there about keeping it light, and I'd love for you to show your your content studio you've got right now. you're spending a lot of time creating some fun content around the last dance or the first round of the draft using your kids. First, get, how about a little tour of the content studio? If you yeah, no, this is my garage. Everyone's saying how cool my background is. This is actually a garage door. <laughs> it's a fake wall. This is my laundry <laughs> room. So, yeah, no, I mean, when the quarantine hit, the first thing I did was I started to kind of just build my own little area to maintain the ability to do content because to Michael's point, like people still want to be entertained and not just, it's, it's not a one, it's a necessity, right? Like that's what the sports world is. That's what sports do. That's what athletes do. That's what entertainment does. It gets your mind away from the realities going on in the world. Um, a good example of that is uh, the last dance series with ESPN. You know, it's like appointment watching. It's, it's probably the highest viewership that's not live sports in a very long time at ESPN. It's because we have the ability to go in there and watch content together get our minds away and actually spend time together on social media so for me it was you know as i said at the beginning it was trying to like you know figure out what this whole thing meant as a whole and you know one thing i landed on was that people want to be entertained and if i can make somebody smile make somebody laugh then to patty's point that's also a form of giving you know and and so that's what i've been trying to do trying to keep it fun um while also uh, diving into ways I can help, you know, and, and what I started to do is with a lot of my videos and my content tie it directly to a cause that way it's, it's, it's feeding both of the kids, right? So you're entertained. And then also we're making sure we're still thinking about other people who are in the situation where they might not have the ability to laugh right now because the situation is very real. And how much do you think of that learned behavior, which you've been able to take advantage of because of time will continue <laughs> Uh, in a month, three months, six months, or, or when you're back to working full time with the podcast, with yeah. NFL Network, and your and your other pieces of work, I, th- I think a lot of it, to be honest, and, and I've been getting a ton of feedback, as you would imagine, and people, you know, all kind of people reaching out and, you know, telling me this is my true calling, you know, and it's a the humorous side of me is just another part of my personality that I've always wanted to tap into with all of my content because it's who I am. Um, so I think going forward, it has showed me a lot, and and you know that's what that's what tough times do. That's what obstacles do. You know, again, I grew up not having a bunch and I feel like that's where my creativity comes and creativity is bred in your most restrictive state, right? Like you have to figure things out. That's why, you know, guys like Steph Curry are so amazing to watch because he gets in these situations and he figures out a way to still come out on top. And that's what makes it amazing. So I think what this is going to do for a lot of people, not just in the sports community, not just in the entertainment world, creative, I think for companies, I think going forward, no matter how long COVID-19 and the lockdown lasts, I think it's going to significantly change the way we do business um, and, and the way we conduct and move ourselves because now that we're forced to, to figure things out on our own, it's going to make us stronger and it's going to change things for a long time. And, and Brian, I, I'm going to ask a question and add on to one of the uh, questions from the audience here. And the, the question was about how much of past strategy 
that you've worked on, that everyone's worked on in Stephen Curry's business, do you take to bring to today with the added piece of who are you leaning on to determine how to do the most good? Yeah, I mean, um, the the great thing about Stefan and when we started SC30 Inc. about two years ago was the whole entity is rooted in being purposeful and purpose-driven in the actions that we take. Um, so everything, I mean, our filter for everything, we use the term ruin the game. And it's it's like Mark Jackson said it about Stefan, ruin the game of basketball. We look at it as like being transformative, challenging the status quo, um, you know, turning things on their head. But everything that we aim to do, how does it ruin the game in some way, shape, or form? Oh, you're investing in this company. What are they doing to be transformative? Oh, you're doing this action with the foundation. How is that transforming people's lives? So um, in, a, in a sense, we were set up with, uh, I think, the proper foundation to be able to jump right into this and, and go. And the foundation, I would say, has had more work in the last two months, uh, e-learn play, than, than it. I mean, we, we launched it last July, so it's, it's less than a year old. Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, there's a strategy in place before this to be able to just jump right in. And, and, and we took quick action. I mean, um, right off the right out of the gate, um, you know, we committed some of our resources, but also in, you know, in the spirit of galvanizing others, we're able to provide over a million meals in the first couple of weeks for Oakland residents, primarily students, because when the school shut down, you know, Hawk, you mentioned this earlier, there's 18,000 students in Oakland that rely on free meal programs, um, at least one to two meals a day. And all of a sudden, they no longer have food to eat. Um, and so, um, you know, the foundation, one of our three core pillars is around childhood hunger. And, um, and so instead of uh, going after the, you know, PPE frontline workers, those are all great causes. We chose to look at the ripple effects of COVID, like those ancillary or secondary causes. So hunger is one. A second one is around education. That's one of our other pillars. And a third is around, around play. And so we quickly jumped in and said, okay, there's going to be a lot of people focusing on masks and, you know, um, and ventilators and all of these things. Well, there's some other really real concerns. Um, and then what was the second, the second part of the, the question? It, it's just about past strategy, which you've got on, but also are there, are there others that you lean on in this time or Stefan leans on or MasterCard or Hawk? Like, have you found new people to lean on for uh, just thinking through strategy right now? Um, not troubleshooting, yeah, I mean, but best practices maybe? Yeah, I think it's, I think if you're not leaning on other people, then you're setting yourself up for failure anyways, right? I mean, um, I think the way that we look at it, we have a small org, but uh, we're constantly leaning on, you know, experts in other fields. We're leaning on our brand partners, founders of portfolio companies, uh, partner organizations. You know, we're doing a lot of work right now with World Central Kitchen, Jose Andreas, his organization. They're doing amazing, amazing work. Uh, we're in the process of open, helping open 25 restaurants um, in Oakland to give people jobs, but also to feed the people of Oakland. Um, and so if you're not leaning on people, you're probably doing it all wrong re regardless. But, you know, David, you're a good example of that, right? When Dr. Fauci um, was on the Barstool podcast, right, you and I started talking about, wow, how amazing it is that, is that he's getting outside of your Fox News CNN, NBC TV audience and trying to reach a different demographic. And David and I had a conversation and that's how the Fauci Stefan conversation happened. And, and David made the introduction to the NIH for us. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest is history. And, and that reached over, you know, that had 5 billion media impressions in mm -hmm. 72 hours. Um, and so like, I don't know, like maybe we could have gotten that on our own, but David, you were a huge help and, and connecting the dots on that. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we look to, you know, Under Armour and JP Morgan Chase and Rakuten and Callaway and, you know, our PR team at, at Rogers and Cowan and all of these people, like that's, that's why you have partners and that's why you try to surround yourself with great people. Um, because there's innovative ideas and there's resources that you might not have access to that they can unlock that amplify your efforts.
One piece that we haven't touched on that is another piece of this pie, teams and leagues. Um, and Michael, there's a couple questions in here about UEFA Champions League and obviously a big place for MasterCard. And I guess you, you've seen it across the, the global aspect with cricket and rugby and other places that uh, your business is also in Asia too. So you saw some of this stuff earlier. Just take us under the hood for a moment of your conversations with teams and leagues properties. Is it different? By, by each property and league? And is that dictated by geography or who their audience is? Can they be fanless or not, or their leadership? So just touch on properties and leagues, if you would. Sure. Yeah, it's it's all over. I mean, all over the map in that you've got different phases that people are in. You've got different event structures and different setups. Um, the the I can tell you they're all obviously trying very hard. It's, it, you know, they're all in the same situation we are. Every commissioner is working from home. They've got the same limitations uh, that we all do, but they also have some access. I know one league for sure has reached out to a former, I think they've got a partnership right out to try to keep confidential stuff, but uh, has got one of the former heads of the CDC as their, as their partner. So they've got, uh, you know, good counsel. And, and I, you know, these are these are people we all know and like. But if if they start talking to me about what they're going to do for disease prevention, I'd probably get a little nervous. But knowing that they've got talking about partnerships, that they've got the right folks and they're 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 getting counsel from people. So I think that's a great start. the The notion of fans that that's really going to be the big unknown, right? So in Europe, I think it's already been a little bit further ahead than we've seen here in the U.S. This whole notion of behind closed doors or basically fanless. So running an event, providing content, running. Um, you know, having the activity, it really depends on the sport. I happen to know that a soccer match in Europe takes 239 people. That's the number they've come up with to actually have the match. Um, so that's the number of people they need to test, protect, um, and 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 have and cause the cause the competition to happen. So they're looking at different ways to do that. Clearly, without fans is going to be the most practical because that's you know where you get too much human interaction. Um, I think it's all pretty safe to say once you do have some some um, some content, some activities, the ratings are gonna be huge. I mean, I'm picturing and there's, uh, you know, there's talk of how UEFA is gonna try to do things this summer with a, with a potential mini tournament. The ratings will be probably the highest you've ever seen. PGA Tour has already announced that they're gonna have uh, tournaments starting in about three weeks, uh, sorry, about four weeks, I believe, in Texas. They're gonna have three or four events without fans. Look, it's going to be different and it's going to sound different and it's going to look and feel different. But I also think we need to, and you know, we're all in the marketing content business. How is it going to be better? Let's just not assume it's it's lacking or not going to be as good. Um, and I'm I'm making up ideas, but why can't the why can't it just look and feel maybe better? Maybe the athletes feel a little bit, you know, golfer can feel a little bit more comfortable. Maybe we see a little bit more of their routine, we see a little bit more of them talking, we see uh, more of their training. We we can just I think we can challenge all of ourselves. We have to be careful. And I'm, you know, cognizant we have a, an athlete person here. We don't want to just assume athletes are going to solve all of our problems and that, that they're going to have to, to do more than their job because uh, we have to be honest too, right? Over the next few months, these athletes are going to have to get back to training. I know they're all trying and I know they're doing their in-home stuff and, you know, uh, uh, you know, Chapman's home throwing to his neighbor. I don't know who he's throwing to. I think, Hate to catch that from him at the Yankees, but uh, you know they're going to have to get training again, right? They're going to have to be competition ready because these are going to matter. So things are going to take time. Things are going to take a little bit of work, but I think I think there's ways that maybe the leagues and teams can look at this a little bit differently and realize that without fans there, that opens up maybe some opportunities for us as the fan to see things differently. So I think that would be pretty exciting. Um, hopefully there'll be some of those positives that'll come out of it before we kind of work our way back to, to the normal world. Hawk, have you had those conversations with from, from a media platform perspective as it relates to Uninterrupted or NFL Network or just other media partners and maybe a look on how they're thinking of things too? Yeah, I, I, and I think the, the, the overarching you know, sentiment is that we don't know. Nobody has any idea at this point. And, and we know everyone is putting contingency plans together and everyone is you know, doing the what if scenarios and hoping for the best. But the reality is we have no idea. You know? and, and even in, in the context of no fans, which is, seems to be the safest and most logical thing to do from even just thinking other sports, it's like you know, what happens if one person interacts with one person who has it and they come into the locker room in close quarters. Um, there's just so many things. And, and I think the, the hope is 
you know, much like I have no idea how an airplane stays in the air. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I, I'm trusting and hoping that it will be back and that people who are smarter than me will be able to figure that out. And, and Patty, we've, we've worked together now for the last month yeah. on this Athletes for Relief initiative, athletesrelief.org, where we've got 175 world-class athletes giving right. memorabilia and raising money for CDP. And just e- even browsing through your website, you've had some uh, corporate donations come in from PGA Tour charities and Titleist and some others. Uh, so curious, what, what you see there from a sports side and philanthropy, um, but also I imagine from a charity standpoint, from a branding, it, it sounds weird to say, but this is the time when a charity probably has the most ability to brand themselves for future funds and future relief down the road. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess if you look at it in terms of a a silver lining in in these relationships is, is, you know, going to Brian's point is we're building partnerships and there may be partnerships we would never have had before, or that we would have never had the opportunity to have before. And, you know, the idea of, of having an ability to inform and acknowledge and, and build that stewardship responsibility and understanding with each other of what the value is of giving. I mean, you talked about when this disaster um, would end. I mean, to be honest, this disaster is going to be in place for some people for years, long after a vaccine has come into effect. And, and we need to be open about that. We need to be talking about that. Um, it's also allowed us to see some of the issues in, in our own country, but also in other countries that predate this disaster and that are problematic to our recovery. Uh, for example, you know, I think a lot's been written about minimum wage and, and the economy and in the gig, the gig economy, and and you know, do we do we want to explore having political solutions that will enable people to be in better places? And so, there's there's that side of it that comes out in this disaster that allows us to to maybe grow as a society, to develop as a society. But I also, you know, back to your point about the partnerships, we've 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 seen an incredible amount of giving. Um, you know, we have over $21 million in our fund right now related and, and from all sorts. I mean, you know, mom and pops writing, you know, small checks to us and very large donations from, from corporations. And of course, then these, these great cause-related marketing or cause-related campaigns, which, you know, Andrew spoke about doing one um, in Ohio. Those kind of campaigns, we, we never know exactly where they're going to end, but we love those campaigns because they have such an incredible ability to inform to show the society a caring on a great level. It's not a problem over there for someone else to deal with. It's not a problem for the the big corporations to put money into. It's a problem that we all own together and that we can all resolve together. And my $5 can go into a pot where there's another $5 and maybe another five and another five. And before we know it, we've got millions of dollars that can actually go to help in a way that I personally wasn't able to give to before. You know, I, I couldn't see the scale of what I could give, but because I'm donating into this pool, my what was a drop of water has now become a pool. And that is, I think, an incredible under, you know, opportunity for all of us to recognize that, 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 that helping and building those partnerships, looking at how we can explore working together, the Athletes for Relief, you know, site it's just so exciting to look at i mean you know just just as someone who has children who play in sports who loves watching sports just looking at all these amazing athletes who are taking their time dedicating memorabilia bringing attention to this issue in various ways those are all helping us with our healing and where we will go and so i i i think it's been valuable you mentioned a few we've had a couple of others like athletic um uh, clothing sites i mean there's been a number of different things that have tried to have tried to connect with us and we really value all of those opportunities to work with those organizations towards um, helping them have a platform to, to be seen, um, not just to be seen, but to actually contribute to um, what, what society needs right now to help recover from this crisis. Michael Hawk, thank you, Patty, for that. Michael uh, Hawk talked earlier about the learned behavior uh, and content. And I'll admit I got sucked in on YouTube a week or two ago when Graham McDowell and Justin Rose, we're playing a world golf tour virtual game for nine holes. Um, I imagine that was the first time you've done that with them. Um, And will we see more of that? Are we going to see little bite-sized pieces? Is, is Is that what your audience wants? Is that what you're learning from them through this too? 
It comes from a few different things, but you're right. We have, uh, we've got over about 35 ambassadors, I think, that we work with around the world. They're either um, athletes, chefs, um, some entertainer, that sort of thing. And yeah, look, the whole world's gone digital. And for, for all of our challenges of being at home and, uh, and all that, we've got so many more tools and things. I can't imagine 100 years ago, I guess you're out working in the yard. But uh, now we've got all these great things that we can, we can do to, 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 to spend our time. And yes, we've got some great partners that some of them started organically. You know, those that know someone like Ian Poulter, uh, he's just always engaged with his fans. He's always having a conversation. Uh, he just had to adapt it and change it. Um, to, to what it was. So we enlisted him to do a few things. And yes, you know, MasterCard, thankfully, we've always been about this idea of an experience. We've been around the, the whole notion of priceless. Its foundation has always been that things matter, uh, that experiences matter more than things. Now today, an experience is digital. An experience is what we're having right now. Um, and so the idea of working with um, all of these different players to say, listen, let, what can we do in, within our brand, within our business, within our messaging, within our tone, that we can provide these to our, to our consumers that we've been, you know, hopefully sharing good things with in the past. Now it's basically moved online and we've got a, a number of them planned that uh, hopefully we're going to be trying to be new and creative and entertaining. And I think the biggest thing that we're all seeing, and we've gone through different phases, depending on what you read, but um, how we try to connect right? That's, that's the thing that we've all lost so much is how do you connect? I mean, who would have thought you could take away things that have been taken away, that we can't go out to have a restaurant, that you can't just knock over your neighbor's house and, and, and hang out for a little bit. So this whole notion of human interaction and, and how we've been pulled apart and having to invent and find new ways to connect. So we're trying to do that same thing. Yes, a Zoom call is great and it's fun to maybe even reconnect with people we haven't in a while, but how can we add maybe a sommelier in there and have you get some new wine that you haven't experienced or tea or different picnics or different, different ways that you can not just force and artificially create these things, but actually have a, a reason to, 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 to connect. And we just did one this weekend where we had a chef and there was a family involved and they were in multiple, unfortunately, given the circumstances, the family's separate. So the family was able to though, to cook a meal together and spend that time in, um, and actually, I think in talking to them, it distracted them enough that they didn't feel apart. It wasn't the normal face-to-face, FaceTime, Zoom call that said, hey, good to see you. I, you know, I miss you too. There was actually an activity and it made them feel more natural and made them feel more together. The fact that they had this amazing chef walking through and, and teaching something was, was extra special. But this idea of just trying to create these experiences for, for people to, to overcome what we're trying to do. And like I said, hopefully have a little bit of a laugh, but also um, just keep those human connections going. That's what's so important. Brian and Hawk, there's been a, a few questions in terms of just prioritizing asks. And you both talked about uh, a sense of responsibility um, with a platform um, and, and where you live, but you also can't respond to everything. You can't post everything on social media. So how do you go about prioritizing um, how often, who and how often you can uh, share content to others. Maybe Hawk, you want to take a stab at that and then Brian add on to that if you would. Yeah, for me, and I'm sure Brian has uh, a much bigger strategy than I have. It's just a feel thing. You know, it's something that moves me. It's something, hey, I, I, I like this initiative. I think this needs awareness. I think, you know, if I can provide my platform to help this person, that would be great. Uh, I would love to, you know, amplify every single opportunity that comes by me. But the reality is, is there's certain indicators that um, I don't have an exact checklist, but, uh, you know, you have to make sure it's legit. You have to make sure that, that the initiative tied to it, there isn't, you know, any fine print that you could be amplifying because it does also tie to your brand. And the last thing you want is amplifying something that could hurt you because then that hurts other causes that could benefit from your platform in the future. So it's just a feel thing for me. And it's, it's basically as simple as that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say our strategy is that much different. Um, I think one is always like check out credibility. Like that's, that's the biggest thing is like not putting Stefan in a position where uh, we're doing something that, you know, um, is, is brand damaging. Um, you know, so I think, I think it's checking it out. We do a lot of things behind the scenes. I mean, I think our preference is to just do something that's special for said family, kid, teacher, et cetera. I mean, a couple of things we've done in quarantine have been around teachers. Like teachers are really struggling right now 
to engage students. You know, you can only do so much in a Zoom and there's distractions and every, you know, there's enough distractions when you put 20 to 30 kids, you know, second graders in a classroom. Now put them all in Zoom where they have everything in their house behind them. I, I don't, I mean, I just know Stefan like trying to help his daughter Riley with Zoom classes and it's like, it's nuts. And so, you know, there was a, a teacher that reached out and um, they were doing a project where kids needed to design their own shoes. They needed to come up with a problem the shoe was going to solve and it could be anything that they wanted, you know, to solve with it, with footwear. And um, she said, is there, you know, no crazy ass, but is there any way Stefan would do something? And, um, you know, Stefan ended up recording a video for the class, give them some inspiration. And then all of a sudden we're getting like 30, you know, projects back. They're sending us all the finals and, you know, Stefan, Stefan looks at that stuff. Um, there was another teacher in Virginia that's doing something around exercise and physical activity. And so she's trying to get celebrities to give five letters to the class and each letter in the alphabet uh, is tied to some activity. So B might be 10 push-ups, C might be 10 sit-ups. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I Googled this teacher in the school and she's been doing all these amazing things for her class. Um, and showed it to Stephanie was like, absolutely. And it took them 20 seconds to say, Hey, you know, such and such class here are my five letters, like, you know, um, stay safe, blah, blah, blah. So we do a lot of things that I think are behind closed doors. There's not a perfect way. You can't do everything. Um, you know, and a lot of times we do stuff that's not Stefan specific. So, Hey, it's a kid's birthday. What size is, what size shoes does the kid wear? And three days later, he'll have a pair of Stefan's basketball shoes on his doorstep for his birthday. Stefan doesn't need to be included in that. Uh, he knows we're doing it, but it's also a way for us to be able to extend kind of Stefan's generosity without also taking up too much of his time. You, you mentioned teachers and we've had a lot of conversation here about real life heroes and frontline and nurses and, and, and doctors. I go back to 9-11 and think about how that changed military appreciation till this day. And we've got God bless America in the seventh inning stretch, not just take me out to the ball game. And we have military appreciation and wave your hat at every single prof professional sport games. So I saw, we know today that there's a real life heroes, hashtag real life heroes uh, campaign that's out in the market where a number of leagues, teams, properties, athletes have taken their name off the back of their jerseys and have put uh, a family member, a friend, um, or a, you know, a doctor, nurse, teacher in their neighborhood and put it on there and that's the back of their jersey. I'm curious where you guys think that goes six months from now or five years from now. And will we be including frontline workers as part of the sports experience like we have over the last 20 years with military? Michael, you want to take a shot at that? I don't have any, um, you know, I haven't heard of anybody, you know, planning to do it yet, but I would be surprised if they didn't. I mean, I think if you, if you start with teachers and I'll be a little biased, my grandmother was a teacher, so I was around that a lot. And, and, uh, the, the, the notion of teachers being underappreciated uh, is, is not a new topic. And I think everything, I, we don't have kids, but from everything I've seen, um, uh, every parent is appreciating their teachers more and more as they're home doing their job. So I think, I think teachers um, can never get enough credit, can never get enough attention. So I, I would be surprised if communities didn't, um, didn't figure out ways to, to support them more and, and, and show their appreciation. I mean, I, I don't know how that would be done um, differently. Obviously sporting events pull people together and, and maybe that would be a great way. And then the same thing with medical, but I think it even goes beyond that, right? We're seeing so many other areas of cleanup and yeah. food preparation and, and it, it is just so broad. And I, and I mean, we started the conversation that way and we're, we're probably going to end it that way, which is this has touched so many facets of our life and it's touched it everywhere. And I think if we learned anything from, from 9-11 or the financial crisis or now the consistencies are that those that are, you know, tend to be the, the biggest and the strongest of those leagues and teams and that sort of things will, will fare just the best. Yes, it won't be the way they'd like it and they'll have to make some sacrifices that are going to be uncomfortable, but it's always those that are most vulnerable and it's those that are, that, that needed it or were on that teetering edge anyway on, on, on a weekly, monthly, whatever basis you want to measure. Um, but across all of those, and, and I think we're seeing, and, and what's great to hear, and again, given technology and given 
how the world is is connected so much better, we are able to support those those communities so much better. So everything down from that one kid who needs a meal to that that one that one person who's on the cleaning crew at the at the hospital that's working double shifts because the, the whatever it might be. So I, I think those are the places that we have to make sure we continue to shine the light on. Doesn't mean we shouldn't shine lights on doctors and nurses. They're amazing and important, and and we're seeing them today. But I think we're just being reminded again that what's the definition of a hero, um, and what 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 are, who are these folks all around the world? Not just in our own, you know, in the U.S. here, but around the world. How is it we can celebrate them? Because it's probably the one thing that's combined us in a way we've never seen before. Uh, th this has gone by incredibly fast. I'm trying to look at. Uh, a number of these questions that have come in because it's uh, countless on my phone and, and even just through the app, but just with a few minutes left, just trying to organize here a few. I guess if I summarized a few here, it's about um, looking at your current strategies and business practices and principles and how much right now are you evaluating and reevaluating or are you just acting and you plan to, to do that later in terms of what future strategy should be? Is there an ROI piece to this from a brand perspective, Michael? So I'm curious how much you guys are thinking about that now, or are you focusing more on the act and, and you'll do that later? Patty, you want to take a shot? That's an interesting question. I mean, I obviously doing a good job as a disaster philanthropy organization during a moment of a global disaster is not a bad thing to be able to tell people we were able to do, but that's not the rationale or reason we do it, right? So I think um, obviously from a strategic perspective, what we're trying to do is just be the best stewards we can be of the funds that have been trusted to us and to ensure that we are helping the most vulnerable within the programming that we can, that we're going as far as we can with the funds that we have, and that we're attentive to the other disasters, the other crises, the other you know, I mean, Brian called it, but talked to the ripple effects, not just of this crisis, but but of what other um, challenges communities will have. And so in many ways, our strategy is a little bit on hyperdrive, but but we're doing what we were actually designed to do and what we are, you know, trying to do the best way we can just on a, on a much larger scale than we have in the past. Um, so I think in that sense, um, very much what we see ourselves as is experts in disaster to inform and to help steward people through this process in terms of how they give so that they are you know, able to give to legitimate organizations that have the capacity to work um, in the best way possible right now, but also to look as broadly as possible where the needs are. As Michael said, we have a lot of attention in certain areas with medical practitioners, but the needs are so, so broad um, across so many aspects of our sector and our culture that we just need to keep an open mind to that. And we try and play a role in helping remind everyone of what those may be and providing the, the evidence for them on, on their choices. Hawk, are you evaluating right now what you do every day? Oh, mute. Took, 50, took 59 minutes to get somebody um, on mute. I, of course, I would be the one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. I mean, more than anything, it's just digging into who I am. I think that's what this time has done. You're alone with your thoughts. I have more time than I ever had because I'm not sitting in LA traffic. I'm not going to meetings I probably don't need to be in. I'm not having to set up uh, meaningless calls, have to decide what kind of pants I have to put on, shoes. Do I need to cut my hair, shave? So I'm literally adding two or three hours a day. But I think in this moment, whether you are creating content or you are passionate about giving, people are going to remember this time, right? When things go back to normal, they're going to remember if you were a person that, you know, are preaching that you cared about people and you love giving back and you want to help, they're going to remember how you did that in this moment. If you're a content creator, when all the resources are gone, what kind of content were you able to do? Because when the resources come back, I feel like the networks, the places that are going to, to places to create documentaries, films, shows, you name it, they're going to remember the people whose content was elevated when no resources were there. So when you apply resources now, they're going to think, man, imagine what this person could do with all the resources we have in place. Uh, so I think it's going to amplify a lot of things. And I am cognizant of that. And, and my strategy is to just do like that. Put it all on display, right? Be the best I could be. Tap into my creativity. And you know, from a giving back standpoint, do as much as I can. And, and as long as I feel like I've done that, then the, you know, whatever the, the consequences are, whatever the results are, um, you know, I have no control over. 
And as we close, I'd be remiss not to thank Mrs. Barr, who chose to keep the baby in the belly for at least one more hour to uh, give us Bryant. Applause, uh, Mrs. Barr. Yeah, during this time. So we certainly wish you guys the best with that. Uh, Patty, Hawk, Roby, Bryant, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, as important, more important to the audience. And you can see questions coming in from China and everywhere. Really appreciate everyone sticking through uh, and asking the questions and wishing all to be safe, be well, and let's get sports back soon. And thank you, David, everybody. Thank you for your leadership as well. Yeah, on this. Thank you, David. Great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. And that's The Bond. See you next week.